through the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. The title of our message today is Arise, Move, and Go. That is our fundamental overarching theme. It is God's imperative to his people as we are reminded consistently that we are just a passing through. And when you fail to realize that, you can be trapped by some of the pockets of life that are designed to keep you paralyzed and not moving forward. We are, as the Hebrew people are, uh, on a journey. And that's what I've told you over and over again. And frequently the believer will fail uh, to, to realize that. We are on a journey and uh, our next stop is heaven. And our ultimate eternal destiny is this earth a new heavens and a new earth God will make. So I'm going to help you with some of your theology because folks think that heaven is your home. Heaven is your hotel. Yes, heaven is your hotel. John said in Revelation chapter 21, and I saw a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwelt. And I saw the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth. The Bible tells us this universe will be renewed and this earth will be renewed for permanent dwelling for the people of God. So get used to it, children of God. We might as well get our theology right while we're in church. Church is the most dangerous place in the world. You generally pick up, maintain and preserve error in this place. But we try to avoid it. And one of them is, is that heaven is not your home. It's your hotel. It's a new heavens and a new earth wherein King Jesus will dwell. And that is all typified by the pattern of the Old Testament. It's perfected in the person of Christ and it becomes a permanent reality when Christ comes again. Did that make sense to you? It's patterned in the Old Testament. It's perfected in the person of Christ and it will take on permanent, eternal, cosmic transformation when he comes again on the last day. So as we think about something that is before us right now, and I'm looking out in the audience and I see quite a few of you new people here. If you're not um, used to reading your Bibles, our narrative is going to be strange to you, although I'm fairly confident that the storyline that we're dealing with right now is, is fairly common. We, we know about this event where the children of Israel now are being allowed to actually go over into the promised land, break the border of the wilderness in Sinai, uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and go into the southern border, uh, borders of Palestine or Israel and make their way up to Hebron. We'll see that in a moment. And they'll get an opportunity to spy out the land. They're going to be observing the land that God promised them. And the question that you and I want to take away from our study today is really what are the lessons that we should take away from God's word in this context for us? Because what good is it if you and I have a reading of an historical event and it doesn't have application to our life? Well, the subtitle is going to help you with that. So today in our overarching title, Arise, Move and Go, the subtitle is what do you see? 
And I am picking up from where we were last week. Obviously, our narrative is flowing historically from one journey to another. We are in the 14th encampment. This would be Numbers 33 around verse 16. We're in the 14th encampment. And you guys have been walking with me now, according to our outline, through 28 or 29 messages. And we're on the 14th encampment. And I know I'm going to challenge you with a little bit of a government map. You can do the numbers. 14 encampments right? 29 messages. That means we have devoted almost two messages per encampment. Would that be right? And we could have devoted 10 per encampment because the word of God is infinite in its significance. It's infinite in its depth, but we can only do so much in about an hour and 15 minutes, correct? So here's what I will say about today as well. Um, we're going to have to look at the text in front of us, chapter 13 and 14, a couple of times. The account before us of the Hebrews entering into the uh, land of Canaan is really a couple of conversations. The first I'm having with you today. Now, the subject matter I want to deal with has as its proposition, first of all, which is a failure to understand faith and its promises. A failure to understand faith and its promises. And I want you to think this through. This is what our text is going to teach us about today. There is a kind of faith that people have that is dislodged or disconnected from the promises of God. There are all kinds of faith expressions in the world. People talk about believing God and believing this and believing that. But the proposition I want to lay down and build a kind of foundation for our message for you and I today is this. If your faith is not rooted in, cultivated by, and grounded in the promises of God, your faith is not a biblical faith. If your faith is not rooted in the word of God, meaning having its source in the word of God, having its grounding in the word of God and having its telos or its goal in the word of God, your faith is in vain. I'm going to say it one more kind of way to help you. An unbiblical faith is no faith at all. To say I have faith in God, but that faith is not rooted in the precept and promises of God makes your faith a kind of balloon unhinged from anything kind of just floating out there in the ether. Does that make some sense? In other words, you cannot disassociate biblical faith from the promises that grant that faith significant. When men and women say, I believe you're believing in something. When the believer says, I believe, we're believing in something. Not only that, we're believing in someone. When the Bible tells us to have faith, it says have faith in who? God. Now, to have faith in God means to have faith in God's word. Because God's talking to you. God's telling us something. He's teaching us something. God's giving us promises. And what our text is going to teach us is the danger of a faith that is not cultivated by the promises of God. The danger of a faith that does not have its continued nurturing and maturation in the promises of God. I've shared this with you before. Faith is always that space between the promise made and the promise realized. Faith is always the space between God saying it and God bringing it to pass. 
And where you and I don't have a faith that sits between the promise given and the promise realized, here's the danger. This is what our text is going to teach us. When the promise emerges and manifests itself just like God said it would, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. If he declared it, he'll make it good. If he spoke it, he'll bring it to pass. But if my faith is not rooted in the promises of God, watch this. When the promise emerges, my faith is nowhere to be found. That's what our text is about to teach us. Y'all keeping up with me? It is therefore imperative to make sure you know what kind of faith you have. Because the devils have a faith. They believe God and, and tremble. They have more of a, a, a healthy uh, acknowledgement of the reality of God than often we do. And of course, you know, your Bible's clear. Whenever the, the devil talks, he's going to quote scripture. And Christians aren't even armed to do that often. So here's what I'm saying to you and I are about to see the division of two groups of people. Are we not? We're going to find one group of people who woefully missed the promise. Then we're going to find another group of people who met the promises exactly as God had said them to be. And that really is what I want to exercise our senses on today. How can the same group of people see the same thing, experience the same thing, and have two diametrically opposed outcomes about it? It has to be at the level of their faith. Because the reality of what God has said has emerged, has it not? God had always told Israel, I'm taking you to a land flowing with milk and honey, with all sorts of vegetation and fruit and trees and cultivated lands and streams of water. It is called the land of milk and honey. Did God say that? Are they there now? And yet there is a major constituency that does not see what God said. See what I'm getting at? All right. The lessons are important for us today. So we are dealing with point number one. The first thing that I want to call your attention to is how God says, go and what? Go and see. That's our first point. Very simple. Going to lay out some principles. I do need you to pull up our old uh, map. I have three maps around the wilderness sojourn of uh, the children of Israel. And I want the red, white, and blue map. I'm feeling American today. I want the red, white, and blue map. It's, it's actually white, red, and blue. That one, I wanted to come up for a moment because I want to talk about um, what God's imperative was to the children of Israel. It's one of the dangers that you and I have today in America, where everything is so available to us at the level of technology and convenience, it's often our faith does not get to be exercised cognitively and rigorously on a daily basis. We live out of a kind of autonomic sort of um, subconscious level. And, and at that level, your faith is not challenged. Does that make some sense? Unless you and I are intentional daily of waking up to walk by faith and therefore understanding that the cycle of that day is requiring you to walk with God. These are the hymns we sung earlier when we sang about our great Savior, my Savior's love, his faithfulness to me. You and I should be able to express that at the end of every day, how God kept us when he woke us up that morning how he got us to our assignment, how he helped us to stay in our lane, how he helped us to be a blessing to somebody and be a witness to somebody and how he got us home again that night only to do it again the next day. 
That's called walking by faith day by day by day. And when you're walking like that, guess what? The bigger promises that God has for you often a year down the line or two years down the line, when they come to pass, you're ready for them because your faith was rooted and grounded and it was incrementally moving towards the reality of that promise. Does that make some sense, children of God? And this is why you and I have to make sure that we are walking by faith. There you guys see Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Good. This is where the children of Israel has been since Exodus 19. I told you this. In Exodus 19, we are in the third month of the children of Israel coming out of the wilderness. And you and I also know that time is a factor in our walk with God. Sometimes when God is taking his time, it tests us, doesn't it? It really does try us. But we made our way all the way out of uh, Memphis, of north of Egypt, all the way down south to the peninsula of Sinai in 90 days. There, God did a number of things, and I want to remind you of them before we talk about going into the land, because you won't appreciate it. You and I wouldn't be able to appreciate someone entering into their promise unless you somewhat know what kind of journey it took for them to get there. We already know it took a year to extricate Israel out of Egypt by a civil war from heaven to earth. Finally, when they came out, they had to walk with God all the way down to the peninsula for three months. They had a hard time walking with a new king, did they not? But when you get down to Mount Sinai, I want you to think about boot camp because you're going to be parked there for almost two years. You're parked there. OK, and I shared this with you before, but I know we, we, we got a sharp memory. I parked you there as God parked Israel down at the bottom of the Mount Sinai uh, Peninsula. And, and for me, I, I really just want to say this, if, if it makes any sense. What God said in Exodus 19 was I called you to myself. I put you on eagle's wings and I took you up out of the populace, put you in the wilderness so it can just be you and me. This is what we would call in a much more uh, nuptial uh, paradigm, a intimate relationship between God and his bride, like they're getting to know each other. God just purchased her out of Egypt. She was a slave. Now Jehovah is claiming her as his own because he bought her with blood. Am I making some sense? Put the blood on the doorposts and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and bring you out. So they came out by the purchase of blood, as did you and I in the person of Christ. Would you agree with that? So they're walking with God, all 1.34 million people walking with God in the wilderness for 90 days and God's taking care of them. How many of you guys heard me preach this a thousand times? Has God taken care of Israel? Does he take care of us? Does he feed us daily? Do we get to drink of the water of life, eat of the bread of life? Doesn't he give us a cloud by day and a fire by night? Doesn't he protect and keep you, child of God? And we're talking temporal patterns with national Israel. For the believer, they're greater and far more precious promises. But here Israel is down at the bottom of the peninsula. Let me speak to you briefly. They got to hang out for two years because you know what they have to do? They got to be trained. They have to be taught. They have to be conditioned. So God allowed them to make the descent. Now, how many of you guys know it's much easier to walk downhill than it is uphill? Y'all keeping up with me now? And I'm talking about a walk of faith. 
I'm talking about a walk of faith. When God first saves you, he'll often give you a nice little descent, journey downhill away from the scene of the crime, from the place of your sinful behavior. And it feels really good when God's with you and you're going, you know, this is an easy walk. The Lord is good. I mean, if this is the way it is, the glory, man, this is a piece of cake. But you don't know you got to start making your way back uphill in a minute. Am I? Am I making some sense? So now God knows he got a whole bunch of Egyptians that's gotten married to him way down at the bottom. That means they ain't in shape for nothing. Because if you see how the red arrow comes all the way down the Rephidim, turns the corner at Hazaroth and starts going back up, that means we're moving uphill. Y'all keeping up with me? We're moving uphill. We don't start moving uphill until Numbers chapter 10 around verse 11, where Moses says it's in the second year. They got down there in 90 days and they hung out until the second year. They're down in the peninsula for about 16 months. Y'all got that boot camp. They haven't moved. God has provided for them. God's learned. They're learning things about God. Now it's time to go. Now it's time to make their ascent up. And if you were to read your Bible carefully, you would see Hazareth in the book of Numbers uh, around chapter 11. And then as we go up, Rimon Peres. Now we can scroll up a little bit, sis, because I want to put everybody in the wilderness of Paran. Stop right there. Do you guys see the wilderness of Paran? That's the last verse in Numbers chapter 12 before we open up in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. Look at Numbers chapter 12, the last verse. Notice what it says. And afterwards, the people removed from what? Hazareth and pitched in the wilderness of what? Do you guys see that? You guys know how to flip your Bibles? Christians don't do that anymore today. You really ain't even got to flip your Bible. All you got to do is just go back one verse. Do you see it? This is called expository teaching. I'm helping you to understand how to worship in the context of preaching precept upon precept. Are you there? So now we're getting ready to move into the 13th chapter, are we not? So what I'm saying to you, if you go back to the map, if you go back to the map, we are moving now from Hazareth all the way up to the wilderness of Paran. That's a journey, isn't it? Right. So that's actually in our Numbers 11 account where we have our 33 encampments, 42 encampments. We are on number 14th encampment. In other words, they encamped from down at the wilderness in Sinai, which was about campment number 10 or 11. And as they made their way up past Hezeroth Path, Rimon Perez, they are in the Arabia wilderness. By the time they get to the wilderness of Paran, that's about three journeys. They had to stop. It's 1.3 million people. Y'all keeping up with me? All right. So it's there that God gives them the instructions to go over into the land. Now scroll the map up just a bit more. That is scroll it down because I need you to see where we are going. Stop right there. I need you to follow the blue line that takes us all the way over to the Dead Sea. That's under Beersheba. You guys see Beersheba all the way up to the far right? Above Beersheba is the name that you and I want to unpack here in a little bit. It's the word Hebron. Do you guys see the Hebron? Hebron is the place that they're going to. Hebron is the area where they're going to spy out the land. Y'all got that? Hebron is a very important place significantly in the Bible for three reasons. I just want you to see it and we're going back to the Bible in a moment. Hebron is the region of Judah. 
Judah is the end game. Judah is where the son of the king will be born. The son of the king is not David, it's Christ. David's great, 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 great grandson. The Bible is about Jesus. It's not about David. Although David is a point man, Hebron and Judah was touched by the children of Israel before they were brought into being by a very special event. You don't know it, but this had to do with Abraham. Abraham walked all this land that we're dealing with right now that Israel has come into. Has he not? God told Abraham to walk all the regions of the land of Canaan. And yet Abraham didn't get a chance to possess it because it wasn't for him. It was for his children. That's what he said. I am a stranger in a land that, is, that God is giving my children. That's what he told Abraham in Exodus, in Genesis chapter 15, when he said 430 years later, your children will possess the land. Y'all keeping up with me? See, God is never in a hurry to bring his will to pass. And you and I may play a role in it, but we may not ever see the outcome of certain of God's promises. All he wants us to do is play our part. So the first person that touches Hebron is Abraham. Do you know why? If you go back to the text, it's around Genesis, uh, uh, Genesis 22, 23, Sarah dies. And Abram purchases a burial plot in Hebron, okay? That's where it first gets tagged, Sarah dies. And then after Abraham touches his land, when the children of Israel carve out the land of Canaan in 12 parts to the 12 tribes, who's going to get Hebron? Caleb is going to get Hebron. We're getting ready to see that in a moment, okay? Caleb will get Hebron. Why? Because Caleb is going to be one of only two men who actually see the promise. Caleb is going to preserve the land and then the land is going to be taken up by King David a thousand years before Jesus. It will be the city of the great king. It will be the city of David in the land of Judah, the city of Judah. And from David comes who? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Did I help you with some history right there? It's important for you to know that. Now it's time to go back. Let's go back to our text and work through a few principles. Under point number one, and this, this will have application. God says to uh, Moses to tell the children of Israel, go spy out the land. Look at verses 17 through 20 in our text. And Moses sent to them, and Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, get you up this way, what? Southward, because we're going uphill. Y'all keeping up? In other words, even the effort to spy out the land is going to be arduous. You need to be in shape to actually be able to see what God promises to possess you. Some of y'all will get that in a moment. They have to walk uphill to get to Judah, to get to the region, even to just spy out the land. It's important to see. He says, get you up southward and go down into the what? Is that what it said? All right, so you guys not keeping up. There it is, go up. Just go up. I'm pressing this home for a moment. A lot of times we are complaining about the difficulties that we're having in life. And God is calling us to go up. And because it's an uphill climb, we are acting like God is against us. He is not against us. He's against your weakness. He's against your sinfulness. 
He knows his, he has to make you strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is why often when you find yourself climbing up that hill and getting tired and, and, and the wind is, <sighs> you find yourself having to collapse on your knees and to be on your knees is the best place you can be because on your knees is where you get your strength to stand up once again and take another step forward. This is God, how God trains his people. Am I making some sense? I want you to get that. This is not a downhill journey. It's an uphill journey. And I could expand that. All of the battles of God's people have always been won by them going to the top of the mountain and dwelling in their Megiddo authority while all the enemies try to come up and get them. I taught you that. This is why for the believer, you and I are not earth dwellers. We are heavenly dwellers. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every believer has been exalted on high with Christ. Have we not? That's our position. That's our authority. That's our dominion. That's our reign. We get to have a bird's eye view with God on what's going on so long as we have faith. But sometimes it takes a while to get to the top of the hill and you brand new babies in Christ. Y'all just going to have to endure that journey. By the time you get up there, your legs is big, your calves are big, you got muscles in your shoulders, your lungs are twice as big as they, you guys are serious warriors now. It took a little time, but you got there. God is good. Now listen to the language. I want you to hear what God says to them to do. Bear with me. He says, get up this way southward and go up to the mountain and see the land. And see the land. What is he saying? Get on the top of the mountain and look out and what? See the land. What a beautiful position. That's always the place of the prophet. The prophet is always placed where he can see the land. That's the position of leadership. Leadership is always poised to be able to see the domain. The shepherd sits at the top of the hill to see out over the domain to protect the sheep. Some of y'all going to get that. This is what you do. You get up there so you can see. It's not about you. It's about God's will, his purpose, his plan. But somebody has to be a seer. We got to be able to see what God sees. And so this is what he's doing here. And then he says, I want you to see the land. I want you to mark out briefly. I'm not going to unpack it long. I want you to mark out briefly how he is calling us to be exquisitely and particularly focused on the characteristics of the land. I want you to notice what he says. Not going to be here long, but he says, I want you to see the land and I want you to see the people that dwell therein. Thank you, God. Right. See, here's the thing. See, I shouldn't do that. I should just keep going. Here's the thing. For whatever reason, Christians are scary. We don't want to see the battle in front of us. But God is telling you, you got to be able to know who your enemies are. You got to know your adversaries. You got to know where they dwell. You got to know where they're established. You got to know their their mechanisms. You got to know their strategies. You got to be able to look them in the face. The only way you overcome your enemies is to see them for who they are. That's the only way. Let me help you just in case you don't get it. There's only one other sphere and realm that exists in the universe that's more dangerous to you than the devil. And that's your own mind. There's only one other realm sphere in the universe that more, that's more dangerous to you and me than the devil. The devil is nothing without you. He needs you 
to be the kind of person that inflates who he is, distorts God and diminishes God. He needs you to cooperate with him in the delusion that he's trying to bring in your life. But when you can see the enemy for exactly who he is, then you can say with God, is this the man that troubled the whole earth? This little peon, this little wizard of Oz, this little squirmy worm. That means the vast majority of our trouble is the way we saw it. So what do you see? And see the land, what it is, the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak or few or many. What God is calling you and I to do is make sure that we're not operating out of the wickedness of a postmodern framework of distorting reality. We're called to be people of truth. We're called to be people of truth. We're not called to add one inch or take one inch away. We're called to see it exactly as it is because that's reality we got. Truth is reality according to God. And how God sees it is the way I want to see it. I don't want to make it less than it is. I don't want to make it more than it is. I want to make it what it is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. I want to be on a path of truth so I can see the enemy for what he is. Because when I see the enemy for what he is, I can see God for what he does. This is so extremely important. So notice what he says in verse 18, uh, verse 19. And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether it be of tents or in strongholds, and, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether they be wood there or not, and, 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 and be of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first grapes. I love narrative theology. These little aside comments are always little keys to the insights of the redemptive intentionality of God. Don't go to sleep on the narrative. You saw all of these items that God told you to pay attention to as you look into the land. Did he, did he not? So we saw a lot, right? God inserted a conditional clause in there. I hope you saw it because I'm going to talk about it in a minute. I'll come back. OK, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You should have saw it for yourself because it's always attached to an imperative that God gives you. Whenever God gives you something to do, he always gives you a conditional clause of encouragement to do it. He also tells you how you are to do it. It's in the text, but we'll look at it when we come back. Re remember verse 20. Now, under point number one, we are dealing with two extremely important things. I love this. Two extremely important things. Uh, uh, point number one says, arise and go see. And if you'll notice what we were told in Numbers chapter 13, verse one and two was this. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, says, send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall you send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by that commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran, all those men that were heads of the children of Israel. Point number one, arise, go and see. Sub, sub point A, 12 representatives of the people. Did y'all get that? 12 representatives of the people. The imperative or command from God was send representatives. Y'all all cannot go. So you got 12 people representing 1.4 million. Y'all got that? Welcome to the first Legacy Media News Outlet. Let me build my point so you can wake up to the reality of what you're dealing with today. 
In your life and mine, the way we learn is in three categories. I taught us this on Friday. Either God reveals to us what truth is by what is called revelation, because you can't know anything unless God reveals it to you. I don't care what science, what kind of discipline you are in. If God does not make known to you why a thing is, how it came into being, how it functions, that means origin, process, telos, or purpose, you and I are scratching our head trying to figure it out. This is why the evolutionists need hundreds of billions of years to work out their hypotheses of an evolutionary paradigm. They need hundreds of billions of years. And good Christian scientists say that still ain't enough because of what we call irreducible complexity. The complexity of our universe down to the smallest microbe tells us that this thing is intelligently designed. If you have to break up that singular molecule, that singular, that singular uh, entity all the way down into its constituent parts, if it's a matter of time, this is going to be trillions and trillions. In fact, it would be infinity in the past. Now, that makes sense to me since the God I serve is infinite in nature. He creates a universe that reflects him, not you, not me. And God's infinite. So a singular cell structure is going to have the characteristics of God, not you, not me. So if I don't start with God, I'm not going to get my biology right. And what I'm telling you right here is extremely important. What God did with, with the children of Israel is a, fact, a factual, uh, practical matter that you and I operate out of. You and I do believe in absolute truth, right? We know it has to be revealed to us. And when it's revealed to us, whether you know, I'm going to help some of you with your atheist and agnostic friends, because that's what we do. If a thing is revealed to you, you receive it by faith. I don't care who you are. You can be as ungodly as anybody. When something is given to you from someone else, you receive it by faith. That's the first source. So for us, revelation is the first source of all truth. God spoke and it was. God declared it and it was brought into existence. I don't have a problem with that, do you? See, with God, he can do it, okay? We can battle over that if you want to. Now, the second level of knowledge is what we call experiential knowledge. Experiential knowledge is the knowledge of people who are privileged to go to the spot, to the place, like the scientists and the archaeologists, and do the study of the material that God has provided for us. Are y'all keeping up with me? That's called experiential knowledge. Then they write books. And when they write books, they pass them on to other scholars to teach them to you and me. Y'all keeping up with me? Third category. What is that? Testimonial knowledge. Everybody in this room is a product of testimonial knowledge. Everybody in this room is a product. Everyone in this room is a product of testimonial knowledge. The vast majority of what you and I know is a consequence of the testimony of another. I don't have a problem with that. God created all things by Jesus Christ, and then God sent Jesus Christ into the world to testify to the things that God did. Now, watch this. In the same way in our secular disciplines, we write books. God wrote a book. It's a theology book. It's God's testimony of how he did it. I'm good with the one who gave me the testimony because I know he was the one there when it was created. He's the one that spoke it into existence. 
So you and I live at a third level testimonial uh, knowledge by which in our humility, we believe those things to be true. Would you agree with that? Right. Some of us are teachers in here and we have to teach people. And when we teach people, we are hoping and praying we are teaching them accurately because whatever we teach them, that's what they got to run with. Okay, so the only thing that you and I are looking for is to make sure that you and I are operating in proximal truth. So when we communicate it to people, they can be blessed by it. No one is blessed by anybody lying to them. No one is blessed by anyone lying to them, whether intentional or inadvertently, because a lie always harms ultimately. Am I making some sense? So when I talk about testimonial knowledge, I am not talking impeccable transition of data or information from the testimonial knowledge to you and me. I'm talking about proximal truth that we can trust because largely it works. All right, I'm going to drill down a little bit longer into this point with you. This is what it means to be a mother and a father. See, a mom and a daddy are an interesting set of disciplines. Because you essay to do the most important thing in the world any human being can do, and that is to bring children into the world. You bring children into the world, and guess what those poor things have to do? They've got to listen to you. And they've got to listen to you tell them how it is. And they've got to listen until they're about 16, 17 years old. Now, they stop listening around 12, but they pretend to listen until they're 16 and 17 because they, they, they got to get money out of you. So they're nodding their heads saying, you know, I think my dad a little cuckoo, but I ain't going to say nothing because I still need for him to pay the bills. We all do that. We all do that. I'm sharing with you how testimonial knowledge is the framework by which God has confined all of us to transition information. It's called paradoxes. It's traditions being passed down. Y'all keeping up with me? All right. Now, here comes the liability with it. The liability comes when you're a liar. When you are not telling it like it really is. When you are modifying the data for your own ends. When you are afraid to tell the truth, because if you tell the truth, you lose power with the people that you are catechizing or teaching. Am I making some sense? And this is why I opened up with the first point being these 12 men are your legacy media outlet because they are the medium between you and the reality. You are out in the wilderness. You're waiting for them to come back with a testimony and you're hoping they tell you the truth. And we already have read it, haven't we? Out of the 12 men, 10 of them lied on God. And it was rooted in fear. Am I making some sense? That's why I asked you, how do you see it? Because you got 12 men, they saw the same thing. And you got two saying something different than the other 10. Am I making some sense? All right. To me, it's a matter of your prism. It's a matter of your perception. We talked about that last week, right? Misperceiving, distorting how you see. If you are not principled at getting to the facts, then you and I are susceptible to perpetuating a falsehood. Ask the generation I live in. Let's walk this through under point number one and keep it moving. So the text tells us under um, under um, sub point A, 12 representatives and then sub point B, two faithful what? News reporters. Now, do you guys know who they were? Joshua and Caleb. 
Joshua and Caleb. Point number two, return and tell what you see. Look over at verse 25 and 26. And they returned from searching the land after 40 days. So they were up there for 40 days. That's a month and 10 days for those of us who are still in government schools. Y'all got that? And they went and came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran. So you guys know they went up into Hebron. Hebron started as a valley. We're getting ready to deal with that, a valley. And then you climb to the top of Hebron to look over into the city. They came back down the hill into the valley and then went back out to the wilderness. Does that follow? Just giving you a kind of geographical terrain. Notice what it says uh, over in verse 26. Unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the what? Fruit of the land. So now God told them to do that, didn't he? Go see, go, go spy out the land, figure out who the people are. Find out whether the land is good or bad. Find out whether it's, you know, what it's all about. And then also bring back some fruit. Isn't that what he said? Again, he said, bring back some what? Bring back some fruit. That, that's going to be our key in our third point. Bring back, bring back some fruit. The fruit of what you see. Bring it back because you 12 are representing me. Bring back the fruit. Don't just bring back your words. Bring back some fruit. Don't bring back just your notion of things. Bring back some evidence. Don't just bring back your fears or your enlarged faith. Bring back some concrete, empirical evidence to affirm that what I said was true. Did y'all get that? See, so what God is about to do is hold these 12 men to being faithful to what we would call empirical, concrete evidence. Now, why would he do that? Because he knows these men are faithful. They ain't never lied in their life. All right, let's keep going. All men are what? See, God knows how to hedge you in. Oh, yeah, by the way, bring something from the ground when you come back, please. Because y'all liable to make a left and go jump on a ship and go to another state and vacation and then come back with a whole cloth lie. Like what you and I are dealing with in our country today. Just flat out lies. So point number two says, return and tell what you see. Now, this is what it means to be a prophet. A prophet is to tell what they see. A prophet is not to tell you what they think they saw. It's to tell what they see. You tell it just like it is. That's what we mean by prophecy. It's to flow from what you see. Okay, prophecy. Prophesying is to declare what you see. The prophet is declaring what they what? See. So the visual turns into an audible that's translated to the people as a testimony. Y'all got that? Right. And so these 12 men had a very serious task in front of them, didn't they? Because if they don't come back with the right message... They're getting ready to jack everybody up, aren't they? And we're about to see that. Point number two, return and tell what you see. First thing we're going to acknowledge is sub-point A, giants are the first thing they saw. Giants are the first thing they saw. I thought this was quite, quite interesting. If you look over in uh, verse 20, uh, 20, 
26, 27 rather. And they told him, we came unto the land whither thou sent us. This is the way they said it, even slightly different. And it surely flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit thereof. Nevertheless, the what? The people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we what? Saw the children of Anak. You see that? You guys see what's going on here? What's going on here is that the people that are now bringing testimony are coming with testimony of an inflated, fixated perspective on the enemy. Did that come home? They're coming back with an inflated, fixated perspective on the enemy. I I want us to just briefly go back to the um, original event. This is where we would be over in chapter uh, 20, chapter 13, verse 21 and 22. So they went up. This is the original event and searched the land from the wilderness of Zan unto Rehob uh, as men come to Hamath. Now, verse 22. So they ascended by the south. That means they went to the top of the hill. Y'all got that? Now, notice the first thing it says. They ascended to the south and came to Hebron. That's the city we talked about. Where uh, Ahiman, Shishai, Talmud, the children of what? Anak were the first thing they saw were the giants. They climbed to the top. And guess what God wanted them to see? His enemies. So the Anakim or the Anak are what were called giants in those days. They are they were kind of kissing cousins to Goliath and his family. You and I are not going to get into any of the um, Internet, YouTube versions of 25 feet tall, you know, big balloon head skeleton people. I'm not going to go down that path with you. You can you can fantasize about that all you want. There's nothing in the historical archives in the archaeological discoveries that talk about 20 foot, 30 foot men. Okay, we know that Goliath was between nine and 11 feet tall. We have tall people today. We've got tall uh, tribes today. There are people that reach nine, 10, 10 feet. Uh, in this context, the Anakim were, were large people and the Hebrew people weren't that big. They were between, on the average, five foot, five and a half feet tall men, maybe some six feet. King Saul was a little taller. But when you're looking at people that are averaging six and seven feet, they're big, aren't they? But they're not, listen, they're not Star Wars big. They're not email. They're not, they're not you know, uh, YouTube big. So stop it. I'm just helping you right here because what you want to do is make sure that you don't collapse into the speculation that's built around the fantasy that goes on in the media. A lot of our Christians are trapped by that foolishness. Guys would send me email pictures of these aerial sites where the ground is opened up and they found a skeleton of a big old giant. His head is massive. And the skeleton is long. It's the pastor, see, see. I'm saying, so what? They do that in Hollywood all the time. <laughs> Keep your feet on the ground. Christians shouldn't be as gullible. Remember, anytime you're watching something, it can be fabricated. Don't be so gullible, Christian. We believe in unseen things. We recognize parallel worlds. We understand we're dealing with dimensions that aren't easily observable, but we don't have to buy into lies. To the law and to the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, always put it on hold. If you can't prove it here, put it on hold. Y'all keeping up with me? All right, let me let me go on. So the first thing they did was really inflate what they saw 
in terms of the Anakim. And then, then we are told in verse 23, and they came down to the brook Eskel. I want to talk about that at our last point, because really what we're dealing with is them being fixated on their enemy and failing to actually stay stuck on the promises of God. So this is why we see under point number two, giant grapes second. I thank you for that, Lord. You allowed the children of Israel to go to the top of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the mountain to see the enemy. And they saw them. If you guys remember the account, they gave the name of all of the nations as they're making their way up there. So they saw some of the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. They saw them as they were meandering their way through. And then they finally see the Anakim. What are, what are they seeing? They're seeing the formidable challenge they're going to have of uprooting those people out of the land so they can establish the promises that God has called them to. They saw that, right? Now, what does that do for you? Does that cause you now to so magnify your enemy that you can't actually do what God has called you to do? Or does that simply say to you, okay, I know that if I'm going to obtain the promise that God has given me, God's going to have to fight for me. God's going to have to join me in this battle. God's going to have to be faithful to me as I am seeking to be faithful to him in order to get the job done. Am I making some sense? It's extremely important for you and I to get that. So under point number two, return and tell what you see. And that is really an application I want you to grasp. In this world where fake news and false news and propaganda and distortion of the truth that's going on, stop being part of it. Don't be part of it. Don't be part of it. You don't have to listen why you don't have to impress anybody. Okay, so you, you think you know something other people don't know. You probably don't. But let's say you do. Let's say you know something nobody else knows because you and a group of, you know, engineers and scientists and mystics have, have figured out the matrix and you got all kind of ideas. Why don't you just do the integral integral thing of test it first before you propagate it? Because that's what they do. They toss it out there because they want every unhinged mind to latch hold to some of these stupid schemes and just get lost in the wind. And Christians are often going down that route. Why would anybody believe that you are sound in the faith when half of what you talk about can be easily disproven by just a little bit of research. Am I making some sense? No, the thing you want to be certain about is Jesus. You want to be certain about is the word of God. You want to be certain about the gospel. You want to be certain about the grace of God. You want to be certain about sin and redemption and atonement. You want to be certain about sanctification. You want to be certain about glory. Because at the end of the day, what men and women really need is a savior. You want to be certain that the person's problem is not just some peripheral, phenotypical expression or struggle that they're having. Their real core problem is they are disconnected from God and they need a savior. You want to be able to persuade them if you start with God, then the rest of the stuff can be fixed by and by. It won't necessarily be fixed in this life, but God will help you get down the road with your crazy once you submit yourself to the crown rights of Jesus. See, and when people are really ready for God, that's what they want to hear. They don't want to hear some weird, bizarre ideas that really only a handful of kooks are hanging out with. Am I making some sense? Right. And this is what makes what's going on in our account so apropos, because in a moment 
you know, God's getting ready to come into this conversation again. So they see the grapes. It's a beautiful thing. Look at verse 13. And of course, this is definitely what we're going to, uh, uh, verse 23, we're going to unpack this a little later. And they came unto the brook of Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bear it between two upon a stab and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. Now the place was called the brook of Eskel because of the what? Cluster of grapes, which the children of Israel did cut down from thence. And they, and they went back to the land and they were showing this. This is the whole account in, in chapter uh, 13. If you go with me over into chapter 13, starting at verse 29, where they were talking after they made the statement, nevertheless, the people be strong and dwell in a land with walled cities, very great. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains and the Canaanites dwell by the sea. And by the coast, we're surrounded. Can you tell that's the way they're talking? You got enemies over here. You got enemies over here. You got enemies over here. You got enemies over there. God did not send that legacy media in there to come back with that report. But here they are coming back with fear. Here they are coming back with doubt. Here they are taking a microbial virus which can't be seen with the naked eye and blowing that thing up so big and having to turn around in circles on your news media, this, this giant thing with all these tentacles coming out at you, scaring you to death. And if you had paid attention to just your middle school biology, you would know that we're dealing with trillions of viruses. They are 90% of them, 99% of them are good for you. You understand what I'm saying? And he gave you an amazing immune system to deal with the rest of those foods. Y'all keeping up with me? The enemy always uses the same tactics. Blow it up. This is why the end of the text, when they were reading, which just really Caleb was done with it. Caleb, I mean, Caleb was done. We look at it, verse 10. This is brother Caleb. Caleb, now Caleb is old. And here's what he said. Caleb, nope, sorry, Caleb is not old yet. This is when we get to the end of the 40 years. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once. I get the picture. Here the legacy media news outlet. You got your 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 your, your um your 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 male sitting up there with a suit on and a tie talking very proper about the enemy. And then you got your female on the other side. You know you got to have both of them right. And then you got a brother that just breaks in in front of the camera. Hey, stop this! The, no, not this is not the narrative. We got a better story than this. Y'all come on, we can take this place. Now, which one is right, fear or faith? You see what I'm getting at here? I love God's narrative. Caleb said, still the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, what you're dealing with are two opposing narratives. You're dealing with two opposing narratives. They cannot be harmonized. They cannot be correlated. One is telling the truth and the other one is lying. Is that true? 
So the law of non-contradiction as a as a logical principle is in play. I have to just share that with you because I know what the enemy is doing to most people. He's destroying your capacity for coherent thinking and reasoning through. If one person gives a proposition that is diametrically opposed to another proposition so that neither of those propositions can have a legitimate overlap or correlation in terms of their proposition, one has to be viewed as true. The other one has to be viewed as false, right? If they don't have some kind of correlating underlying principle, one is true and one is false. Now, both of those propositions can mutually exclude each other. And the persons that are sharing them can fall under a larger category of either one is telling the truth or the other one is lying or they're both lying, but they can't both be telling the truth. Am I making some sense? So, you know, and this is a problem because I watch this in the Christian faith. I've been watching this for 40 years because Christians, you know, it's really wild because on the one hand, Today, we are being taught how to stay divided from each other, are we not? Right? Whites against blacks. That's the big lie that's going on right now, as you know. Right? And it used to be men against women. That was the bigger lie in the 60s and 70s. And the church bought into all that crap too, did it not? We love buying into division because division is a money-making mechanism. It's a money-making mechanism. This is why I'm sharing a lot of the African stuff with you guys, because they're discovering that they've been hoodwinked for many decades. Politics loves to make money off a of division. And the church should never be hoodwinked by it, but apparently we are. And so the whole idea of division for a long time was a money-making scheme. Now, today, everything is brought together. We call it androgyny. A man can be a woman, a woman can be a man. A child can be this and a child can be, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Now the categories are being divided and people are running into that. How irrational is that? A man cannot be a woman. If he could be a woman, he would be a woman and not a man. And vice versa. Am I, am I helping you? And you, so-called child of God, need to stand on true. You need to stand on true. You shall not buy into the unreal. The moment you do that, what you don't realize is that Jesus could have never come into the world. He was born of a woman made under the law. It wasn't a man that impregnated Jesus. He didn't drink from a chest. He drank from a breast. That'll come home in a minute. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, pure, unadulterated humanity, a God man redeemed us from all iniquity. And he had a real mother. See, this is the battle we're fighting. See, many of us know that this is really a theological battle we're fighting, not a political one. We know if they tear down the fundamentals of science, they can get at our theology. This is why people are so so easily prevailed upon. Subpoint C in our second point, because I, I want to get on to our third point and, and shut it down. Great fear almost what? Great fear almost prevailed. Look at verse two, and that happens. That's that happens. If we're not prepared for the ba- battle, fear can get us. Y'all might as well be honest about it. Don't lie. Fear will get you if you're not prepared. I told you, this is why I said in the opening of my message to you guys, get up every day asking God to grace you to walk with you. It's not guaranteed that you're going to walk by faith on any given day. 
on any given day, it's not guaranteed that you're going to find your prism and lens and bifocals of faith and put them on. On any given day, you will wake up with your natural carnal eyes connected to your natural carnal heart and given over to your natural carnal propensities. Am I making some sense? And by the time you remember, you remember you are a child of God. It's eight o'clock in the evening. You done done, you done done all kind of damage. You done jacked up all kind of stuff. Now you got to hit your knees before you go to the Lord. I forgot I was a child of God today. It's really true. It's really true. Am I telling the truth? Right. You can be so stupid you'll forget your child of God until you're in the middle of your sleep and realize I didn't even pray to God when I went to sleep. Now you got to wake up and break your, your sleep and say, Lord, forgive me. And some of us are so, you know, problematically inclined is that we can go days and weeks forgetting we're a child of God and just do stupid for a long period of time. Am I telling the truth? Now, when that's happening, that's simply called a delusion. You were diverted. You were distracted. Now you're trapped by a delusion. Some delusion has drawn you way out on the plank. Isn't God good, though, to bring you back? Isn't he good to bring you back? Good to bring you back and keep you from falling, to keep you from falling. He lets you stumble, and then he tells you, hey, 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 great fear almost prevailed. Look at this, and I love this. I should lift this up because while you and I are enjoying a narrative uh, propositional discourse, really this is about words. We're doing it in a narrative form, but it's about words, isn't it? It's about truth and error. It's about perceptions that are right and wrong. It's about emphasis one way over against another. Is that not true? And that's what we're dealing with. So think about this. I want application to come as we go. Don't you want people in your life like Caleb? Because you sitting around the house with a whole bunch of saints and y'all lying all over the place. And don't you want one, don't you want one of the brothers that actually got up that morning, our sisters that got up that morning praying and just interrupt that stupidity that's going on? Yeah. I know I just offended somebody right there. I don't care. I'm talking Christians sitting up there just going at it, building all kind of false hypotheses. Woo, boy. And then some brother comes in, man, that was stupid. What y'all talking about? Don't you know the Bible says now that Christian becomes the enemy? Because you were engaging in a myth. You were engaging in a fantasy. You weren't lovers of the truth in that moment. Am I telling the truth? Now, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to hold you right here. Some of y'all know that you have been called to be Caleb's in a given situation. Caleb in the Hebrew means faithful dog. That means you were supposed to be God's dog. You're, you're, you are God's sheep dog to bark when you see the wolf coming. And you see the wolf coming in the midst of your friends and you don't bark. Am I making some sense? Because now everybody's going to be mad at you. But now everybody's safe, but they're mad at you. You done ran the wolf off. Now they're all mad at you. Just let them be mad. Be happy the wolf is gone. If you don't want to eat, I'm going to go ahead on. Can I go ahead on and eat? I'm going to get me a plate and fix my food. Y'all looking at me all crazy with dagger eyes. And I'm thanking the Lord that he gave me grace. He gave me grace. He gave me grace to say, hey, saints, let's cut the lights on because we're walking in darkness in this place. Am I telling the truth? 
All right. That's what Caleb is doing. Caleb steal the people. Man, that takes a lot of power, power to steal people, especially when people want to run. Slow down. We can do this. Verse 31. But the men went up with him. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Boy, do you see it? Um, I have seen this happen so many times among the saints, and I'm just going to share it with you. And this is what I meant earlier about you have to be intentional about cultivating your faith. Because when you don't cultivate your faith in a particular scenario or a challenge or a trial comes up, you'll be very much inclined to follow the multitude and say, we cannot do it. We cannot do it. It cannot be done. The enemy is greater than us. You see all those people out there? Man, don't nobody believe what you believe? Now you're talking unfaithfulness, aren't you? You're operating out of unbelief. It's rooted in fear. These are the 10 men that I just told you were your main media legacy outlet. CNN, MSNBC, CBS, even Fox, if you don't watch them. And all the other media outlets are lying to you and are not promoting truth. Because if we start promoting truth in America, there's going to be a civil war. There's going to be a civil war if we start promoting truth. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Right, because the foundations right now are... Saints, listen to me. I thought about this the other day as I was listening to uh, one of those eloquent brothers just plainly saying no to France and no to NATO. I, I said to myself, look, if our politicians rise up and start saying no to this administration, we ain't doing that. You've got to be... What, take our kids and chop them up into 50 different... No, that ain't... Are you kidding? We're not doing that. No, we're not. We would be in a civil war. This is how deceived we are right now. We are deceived even thinking that it is all right to tolerate it as a conversation. Am I making some sense? Right. Something's wrong. Children of God, listen to me. Something is wrong with our country. Something is wrong. And, I, and, I, and that's what Africa is saying. This country that is talking about freedom and prosperity How can it be so far over the cliff to engage in these kind of absurd, irrational policies? This is what it means to have a strong delusion that you should believe a lie. And I'm warning you as a Christian, you're going to have to understand your faith will have to be mixed with courage. Your faith will have to be mixed with courage. Let me see if I can show you what I'm talking about. Go back to verse 20, like I said to you before, Numbers 13, 20. Here it is, Numbers 13, 20. Now, God said, when you go in, I want you to see what the land is. This is God talking. Whether it be fat or lean, got it? Whether there be wood therein or not, you got it? And be ye of good courage. There it is. There it is. When you come back, I want you courageous. I want you talking like Caleb and Joshua. I want you to let everybody know all 1.3 million people as you 10, you 12 have to be the ones that give them the testimony. Give them a testimony by which they can go. God told us the truth. We're on the brink of the blessing. God is with us. And when God is with us, who can be against us? 
time for us to enter in to the promised land and obtain that inheritance that God promised us all along. Now, I know you're clapping and everything, but I just want you to get this, how dangerous it is to not have that kind of gift of encouragement moving you forward in your life. How dangerous it is to hang out with people who don't have courage. You are going to be stuck in your own wilderness for another 38 years. That's our text, isn't it? You guys know in the 14th chapter that God's going to shut it down. He's going to shut it down. You're going to say, okay. I spent the whole year coming to rescue you. You didn't even ask me to come get you. I spent the whole year coming to rescue you. And I used an uplifted hand and a mighty arm to show you day by day by day by day how much I love you in the person of my son. I fought the battles for you that you could not fight. And I made it that when you walked out of Egypt, they were glad that you should leave. And when you went out, you went out with spoil and wealth and goods and plunder. And now in less than two years, you're going to do me this way when I've got you all the way up to my house. We're at my house now. In fact, you're on the inside of the new home that your husband has purchased for you. And you're going to act a plain fool. Am I overdoing it? All right. I know I'm not. I just feel so bad for this generation I preach to. Right. Listen to me. The children of Israel are in promised land. They made it. We've come this far by faith. And we've entered into the house of the God of heaven and earth, Jehovah who redeemed us from all iniquity. We're about to parse out a beautiful land for people who don't deserve it. And the elders are clowning yet again. Do you see it? It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, uh, as we go to our third and final point, I want to touch on this because this is absolutely critical because over in chapter 13, uh, verse, 20, uh, verse 29, we've already asserted that. Let me, let me, uh, let me, uh, so then we got to verse 31 as, as well. Let me go down from verses 32 to 33 and close out on our final point. And they brought up an evil report. I'm in verse 32. You see it? And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched un, unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. I do not want to be here long. Did you see how fear distorts reality? Right. So as we went through the narrative, nothing about the land eating up anybody was stated. That's the added narrative they put on this legacy of the media as they came back down the hill in order to convince the people not to go up to the hill to take the promise. This here is the, the virus now is huge. It eats up the people. <laughs> I, remember re I remember reading this when I was maybe 17 or 18 years. I'm trying to figure out 
what do they mean by the land eating up the people? What, did the ground just open up and just eat people up like a horror movie? No. They were simply saying that it was hard. They were simply saying that it's going to be a battle. All they were saying was, you don't obtain promises easy. That when God is going to give you something, he's going to test your endurance. He's going to test your perseverance. He's going to test your patience. The trying of our faith works patience. He's going to help you grow in being able to bear up under the weight that's going to strengthen your muscles of faith. Am I making some sense? There are a lot of people who don't go this way of faith that many of us do. It's because they don't want to deal with the exercising of their mind around being retrained on how to think God's thoughts after him and trust God on a daily basis. There are people who think trusting God is absurd and irrational and, and illogical. Don't they think that way? Why, why would you do that? Because there's nothing better to do. When you come to understand that God knows how to show up and give you information and give you data and to come through in his providence and in his care in your life, you and I wonder why isn't everybody running after Jesus? Because he so takes care of us when we walk with him by faith. Now, it is going to be hard. Through much tribulation, do you enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's true, isn't it? It's really true. But I'd rather this than what you get on the other side. Do y'all see what's going on in the world like I do? I don't even know how they can stand all of the crazy that's going on. The insanity, the perversion, the massive lying and crying. I mean, it's, it's, if, if I think we are in Gotham City 2.0. Are we in Gotham City you got to be insane to survive the city we're in today. You got to be a little bit crazy, right? Because it's bad, isn't it? No, I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in that world. I want to live in a world where there's order and structure and governance and righteousness. I want to live in a world where you got to work hard and you will be rewarded for your labors. How do I know that? Point number three tells me they were able to take of the fruit of the land and bring it back as a witness. This is my last point. Point number three in our outline, the grasping of the token of what? Victory. The grasping of the token of victory. The grasping of the token of victory. This is what God had told them to do. And this is exactly what they did. Verse 20 says, and what, whatever the land be, be of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land and bring of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the time of first ripe what? Grapes. This is the time of the uh, grape harvest and the grape harvest in that culture obviously was a massive blessing. This here is strategic how this is laid out. God is allowing Israel to come into the land at that season of the year where the grapes are flourishing and full. Now, the narrative in, of the text talks about it uh, in this way. This would be uh, chapter 13 over in uh, 
Let's see here. Verse 20, verse 20, verse 32. He says, and they brought up. I'm sorry, that's not the one that I want. This is going to be over in. uh, In verse 23 again. And they came to the brook of Eschol and cut down from this a branch with one cluster of grapes. It was so large a cluster of grapes that they bear it between two upon a staff. Have you ever seen grapes that big? This is, this is a massive. You got one brother on one end. You got another brother on another end. Can y'all see the vision? They got grapes this big on there. This big old fat cluster. They walking all the way back. Now, it took them 40 days to do the surgery. I, I just imagine that those two brothers said, now I'm getting a little tired, but we got to take the token back, don't we? Because you got to bring back an evidence that God was telling the truth. Now, let me give you a gospel insight and let you go. This cluster of grapes is said to be a foreshadow of us in the person of Jesus, who himself said in John 15, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, I cut down. Every branch in me that bears fruit, I cause it to bring forth more fruit. Grapes in the scripture are a symbol of God's blessings. They are a symbol of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He is the great cluster of God from which we get the wine that you and I celebrate every first Sunday. The blood is represented in the grape. When the grape is crushed, the blood is drawn out. And that cluster of grapes point to the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first fruits of God's salvation. My joy is in the fact that God's promises are secured to us on the basis of that cluster. Those brothers took back to the camp God's faithfulness to them, not to them, but in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is for us the first fruits. Not only that, think about that cluster of grapes. Now, in a historical context, I can see the anarchy. I can see the giants. Those are our grapes. No, I'm sorry. Those are our grapes. Did y'all get that? No, you you sowed those grapes, but God owns those grapes because the seed is the Lord's. Is the seed the Lord's? And the grape starts with a seed, doesn't it? And then that seed has to go into the ground and die, doesn't it? Didn't Jesus say he was the seed of God? And then once that seed goes into the ground, it can bring forth much fruit. Is that right? Jesus came in the fullness of time. He is the firstborn of many brethren. And then you got to cut that vine. Our master was cut down in AD 33 at the cross. And then you got to crush that vine. In this context, they cut it down and they lifted it up. See, it's hanging on a staff to be lifted up for everybody to see. They're bringing back the first fruits of our salvation. They're letting the children of Israel know the land is already bought and paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. Because you and I know that heaven and earth is only ours by the merits of the son of the living God. 
And Bible tells me in Psalm 104 around verse 15 that the wine is designed to make the heart of man glad. I've been teaching it for years. And nothing like the blood can make the heart glad. This is why every first Sunday we get to share in the cup and share in the bread because it points to the incarnation of the son of the living God who died for us and rose again and ascended on high. So as those two faithful brothers lifted up the cluster, you and I lift him up every time we walk by faith and tell men and women, Jesus is my sweetness. Jesus is my satisfaction. Jesus is my salvation. Jesus suffered and died and rose again. And now my heart is full of the joy of the Lord because God can't lie and God can't change and God won't fail. If he said he'd do it, he did it. If he declared it, he'll make it good. And Jesus is our vouchsafe for all the promises of God. Now, see, it's the cluster that did it. It's the cluster that did it. That's what Eshel means. It means cluster, cluster of grapes. God said, bring some of those clusters back and let the people who did not go see the certainty of my promises so they can overcome the lies of the testimony of the men who didn't want to tell the truth. Y'all keeping up with me? It's very clear. Listen to me, child of God. I'm done with you here. It's very clear that you and I are living in a world where the truth doesn't have a whole lot of room. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. You and I are safe when we keep telling the world that Jesus is the son of the living God. Jesus is the savior of the world. There's no hope for anybody outside of the son of the living God. If you want joy, you need Christ. If you want salvation, you need Christ. If you want cleansing, you need Christ. If you want hope, you need Christ. I am the true vine. And I believe it. I don't know about you, child of God. I absolutely believe it. What our text teaches us and you and I need to get it is that we need to hold on to the cluster. We might miss everything else, but you better hold on to that cluster. How much of a blessing the cluster is. Is the cluster good to you? The cluster is good to me. Thank you, Lord, for your cluster. That's all I want to say. I'm so glad for the cluster. I hope whenever I come over to your house, you have a cluster. <laughs>